Welcome GCC, Psalms 34 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Let's stand and sing this morning.
Welcome everyone to Great Commission Church. My name is J.C. Russell. And my name is Leah Brigant. Welcome. Hey, so last week I shared a pretty cool God story, and I have another one to share if, if y'all would like to hear. Let's hear it. Okay. So Phyllis McKenzie recently shared a few words that God felt um, that God had laid on her heart. Lonely and defeated. A young man in the service came for prayer. He had been struggling with just those things and couldn't figure out why because he's always around friends and family and he's generally just a happy person. So after getting prayer, he shared with us, hearing these words and the prayer spoken over me made me feel seen. And like I, I can finally get past this, I have felt so much better since then. Wow. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Hey, God is on the move for sure. Uh, we've got a great service planned for you today. If you've got that uh, worship guide, you can follow along with us. We've got a few more songs, and then Trevor's going to bring a life-changing message. Uh, also in that worship guide, you'll see a few events. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but summer camp is coming. Everyone say amen. Woo, amen. So you can check that out uh, in our worship guide, as long as a few other, uh, other events coming up. And if you're new here, I want to draw your attention to the uh, welcome card. There's a few steps you can take on this. If you want to find out you know, a little bit more about our church, if you want to get plugged into our Connect group, you can mark those items on the welcome card. And for everyone, we'd love for you to fill out a prayer request on the back. Yes. And you can place these in the offering boxes on your way out. Amen. Speaking of prayer, let's uh, go to the Lord real quick. Father God, thank you for today. God, thank you that your son is alive and Jesus is king. And death itself has to bow to you. Father, we thank you that you are living and victorious and you save us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And stand with me. We are free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Let's sing that this morning.
darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in the
have a seat. Have a seat. Man, you want to see God break through today. Big things are in store. If you expect and ask God for them, He will deliver. Hey, my name is Jacob. We're going to continue worshiping through a time of giving. We practice this every week where we say, hey, Lord, there's a lot of things going on in my life. And I want to make sure that you're first in priority, especially in my finances. So we're going to do that. But before we pass those baskets, I wanted to talk to you about something important to me in my life, and that's coffee. Is that okay? We'll talk about coffee. When I was growing up, there were only two types of coffee. My dad was a Folgers guy, and my grandpa was a Maxwell House guy. There's two. Uh, now it's a lot more. It's a lot more complex. You even got science brewing coffees in ways that probably aren't appropriate to brew coffee, this cold brew nonsense, all right? But I love the smell of coffee. It's something that brings back lots of memories. Uh, I love the way that it just, it's like, oh, this is a warm, inviting environment. And so that's something that's, I love it when I, I wake up and, and Jessica's already made the coffee and I smell it walking down the hallway and I'm like, man, today's going to be a good day. And so there's a Bible verse that reminded me of that smell that I get when I, when I smell coffee for the first time in the morning, it's when Noah built an altar and he sacrificed to God. And God said that it's, the smell was a pleasing aroma. Noah's sacrifice, the smell was a pleasing aroma. In the New Testament, you see this verbiage again in Philippians 4.18. Uh, Paul told the people that the financial gifts that they had given uh, were a fragrant offering. And it goes on to say it's an acceptable sacrifice, and this is pleasing to God. And it's such a powerful image, and I love to think about that when I give financially to the Lord. I love to think, hey, God, is this a, a pleasing aroma to you? As your people have gathered, and we're saying, God, you are a priority in our lives. Is it a pleasing aroma? And I think it is. And so I just wanted to leave you with that quick thought about the, uh, being a pleasing aroma as we give. And so as the ushers come forward, I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to give. Father... It's such an honor to be able to give back to you, God, because that's what makes all of this go. It makes all these, when guests come, God, when, when new life is had because you've given salvation, God, you let us be a part of that by our offering. And God, you ask us to be joyful when we give. And today, God, we want this to be a pleasing aroma to you as we give. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Find Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles, and as you're doing that, can I tell you an amazing story? A year ago today, me and three of my best guys were in East Africa. We were, 
We were in Kenya on Super Bowl Sunday. You know what I noticed? Nobody in Kenya cared about the Super Bowl. They, they, uh, they, they play a different kind of football over there, and so uh, we call it soccer. Uh, but nobody cared. But look, it was on a Sunday, and there is a big game today, but it's not the Super Bowl. This is game day. This is, this is the day of the week when all around planet Earth, the saints of God gather together in the name of Jesus to worship the king. And it happens 52 times a year, and it's bigger than any sporting event, although the sporting event today is pretty cool. I'm, I'm not against it. I'm just saying I've been, where, I've been in a place where it, de- where it doesn't matter, but Jesus matters everywhere. And Jesus is alive and well in here, and I want you to know that our church believes that God is the same today that he was uh, back when he created the world and back when Jesus walked the earth and was doing great signs and wonders and miracles and, and preaching and that God hasn't lost an ounce of his power, an ounce of his goodness, an ounce of his love and grace for us. And the proof is that he's doing it among us. And we, we've been, I thought we'd have three or four stories from prophetic ministry and that kind of thing. I didn't expect 40 or 45. And so we've just been telling them in small groups and, and in services. And I got another one. You want to hear another healing story? Um, there's a lady, she's on our first service, her name is Mary Lynn Brooks. She belongs to our church. She's a widow. Uh, she has a son, a grown son, his name's Matthew. And last September, and this is in her own words, last September, my son Matthew was diagnosed with what was described as a rare, aggressive cancer that would require extensive surgery and then a possible journey through treatment, and that is if it worked. So she asked her small group to pray. Uh, she asked lots of, lots of friends and and. Her son lost his interest in surviving, but he constantly talked about the goodness of God throughout this whole process. And this cancer, and by the way, don't waste your cancer. It, it can actually be something that brings you closer to the Lord. And if, you, if cancer takes your life, it doesn't take your soul. So this was happening to him. He actually got closer to the Lord. Mary Lynn prayed he, re- he would recover his will to survive as initially he declined further contact with his Doctors. And one day, Mary Lynn asked me to pray. And the story's not about me, but I was the one who prayed, so I can tell you firsthand. And I prayed a prayer with her, and I said, God, my prayer is very simple, it's very specific, and it's very short. My prayer is that when he goes to get his scans the next time, that the doctors will be, they'll just be baffled. And they won't understand it, and it'll be something that only you can get credit for. And I pray there won't be any cancer there. Because we were kind of in the mode of, let's pray that God lets the end of his life go well. You know, it's a reality, right? So my prayer was, God, heal him, make it, give him a clear scan, let the doctors be overwhelmed, and let there be no cancer. I want to pray prayers that I know God either said yes or no to. And I want you to know that when we pray for you, we pray believing, not wink, wink, or I'm going to pray this to you, but what I really think is it's not going to work. We believe it. So I prayed, and Mary Lynn said, well, you know, I thought, but she goes, my faith was tiny, but you prayed for me. And, and so here's what she wrote this week. She said, a month ago, Matthew tells me he wants to live, and he'll do whatever the doctors say. He wants, he wants the end of his life, no matter how long it is, to serve the Lord. At the surgeon's office, he went for the final review to schedule the surgery. Two doctors examined him, and they looked at the new data, and the head of the, of the department says, Hey, man, I don't understand this, but no surgery is needed, no treatment necessary. There is no cancer. 
Glory to God. He did that. And he does it for us, things like that, all the time. So come get prayer today at the end of our service. Um, so today we're going to start a new series, and we're, gonna, we're going to preach on the Lord's Supper three Sundays in a row and receive the Lord's Supper together after the sermon so that the message can get you in the right kind of mindset and get your heart ready. And so I call this series Grace at the Table, Grace at the Lord's Table. And did you know that the Lord's Supper was instituted four separate times in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians? But the way that many modern evangelical churches uh, execute their Lord's Supper, you would think that it only shows up one time in the Bible and it's repeated four times and there's really not a whole lot to learn from it. But when God repeats something, he means for us to dive deeply and he means for us to look at why that story showed up in that book's context and see if we can connect some dots to it. And so... Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians were written with different audiences in mind, and because they were written with different purposes in mind, what we can learn as we go through each of these is how to think about the Lord's Supper within the themes of all those books. Did you know that Mark states his most important theme in the very first verse of Mark's gospel? And it goes something like this. The beginning of the gospel... Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is the shortest of the four. It has only 16 chapters. It's the quickest read. And since it's short and since it's simple and the, since the first verse says, I'm going to show you that Jesus is the Son of God, we would expect lots of verses and lots of Bible stories in Mark to back up the claim that Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just a religious leader. He's more than just an example to follow. He is the one and only unique son of God. And that's what I'm gonna show you in this text today. We only need four examples. Uh, the first one is a singular verse. The fourth one is a singular verse. And in the middle, the other two are Bible stories. And we're gonna talk about those. Now, I want you to open your Bible to Mark and look at it from a bird's eye view. Because at Mark chapter 2, verse 1, extending to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it, if this is helpful, it's page 1187 in my Bible. From Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, uh, that is the main section in the Gospel of Mark that, that sketches the conflict of the story and where, where the conflict begins. And in chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6, there are five Bible stories. And of the five, two of them give Jesus the most problems. And those are the two that we're going to talk about right now. In Mark 2, 12, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. We sang about it a while ago. This is the guy that they tore the roof off and lowered him down. I mean, they, the, the, these friends of this paralyzed man commit an act of vandalism. They tear up a guy's house while Jesus is there preaching and they lower this man who cannot walk into the house because obviously that house wasn't ADA ready or compliant. They didn't have wheelchairs like that. And so how do you get him to Jesus when it's a sellout? So they lower him into the, uh, into the room. It's a big drama. Uh, everybody stops. It, it's in the middle of the sermon. It's going to be either awkward or awesome and we don't know which way it's going to go. And then... 
Jesus says something that we celebrate now, looking back, but when he made those comments, he offended everybody. Do you know this? It's Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, modern Christians read that, and we're high-fiving everybody all over the church, and we're, we're texting about it, and we're putting it on, on social media, because if you think about it, we even tell others nothing's more important than to hear Jesus say to us, our sins are forgiven. Isn't that true? But if you were a devout Jew living in Israel in the first century, and you hear a man that you don't know who he is, and he's just come on the scene, and you hear him say, your sins are forgiven, friends, that was an unheard of sacrilege. No one would dare to claim this. And if you don't believe me, Mark chapter 2, verse 7 backs me up. Here's what the crowd said. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So if you're going to publicly tell someone their sins are forgiven, you better be able to back it up. Isn't that true? So how's Jesus going to back up this lofty claim? How is he going to stop the mouths of his critics? Well, one way to do it would be to perform an undeniably great miracle in full view of everyone. You see, the first thing he said to the man was, son, your sins are forgiven. And the next thing he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. And everybody saw the miracle. And the crowd was amazed. The text says that they glorified God and they exclaimed, we never saw anything like this. All right, so that's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's the first story that gave Jesus lots of problems. The second one, the other event, is the final one of chapter 2. And this one's not as familiar with us, to us as the first one, but it's not unheard of. We've, we know this story at least. In the final Bible story of Mark chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and maybe they've started their New Year's resolution, they're getting in shape, but they're, they're like, hey, they're, they're plucking heads of grain, like, okay, it's granola, right? They're plucking heads of grain because they're, they're hungry for an afternoon snack, and they're, they're eating the grain. Now, they're not the farmers, and we would go, are they stealing? Is that the problem? And they, the answer is no, the the Levitical law allows for the edges of the fields that the farmers had to be left alone so that the poor or, or sojourners coming through could, could take what's in the corners of the field. So that's what's happening. They're, they're plucking heads of grain. The problem is not that they're taking the grain. The problem is the day of the week they did it. You see, it's Saturday. It's Shabbat. It's, it's Sabbath. And no work shall be done by any Jews on the Sabbath, and they would say picking the grain is like working. It's like harvesting. And so this was a Sabbath violation in their heads. So the religious leaders, they go to Jesus and they say, you got you to stop this. Not only do you need to stop it, they urged him, correct your disciples, tell them never to do that on the Sabbath again, and then rebuke them so that we can feel better about you. Jesus refuses both of those, and instead he says, 
Don't you remember your Bibles? And he tells them a story from the Old Testament. And that story begins with, you guys remember David that killed Goliath? Yes or no? What did he, he kill Goliath with? A stone. Actually, the text says he threw the stone, the giant fell down, and he took the giant's sword and he cut the giant's head off, right? And that's going to show up in the story. So this is that David. He's not yet the king. He and his army are on the run from the current king, King Saul, and they are hungry. And so they are out on the, they're out in the, the wilderness area, and they come to a temple shrine, and there was a priest there. And David goes up to the priest, and he says, hey, look, see me and my big bad guys back here? We're, we're basically the best army around, and, and we have a need. We think you can fill the need. We need some food, and we need some weapons. Guys, you need to read 1 Samuel. It is, it is a guy's book. There's, there's men and women. There's, there, there's food and, and weapons. And ladies, just if you want to make your guy happy, get him some guns and ammo and some food. Amen, guys? <laughs> and so this is right here in the Bible. And David says, I, I, need, I need some food and I need some weapons. And the, the, the priest says, well, I got bad news on both fronts. I don't have any weapons. I don't have an armory here to outfit your men. There is, there is one weapon here. It's, it's wrapped up in a cloth, and it's in that closet back there. And, and you know it well. It's Goliath's sword. And David goes, I remember that. He goes, well, that'll do me. I'll take that. And, and then the priest says, but as far as food goes, I don't have any. We're out. There's, o- there's only one thing edible here in the shrine, and that, that's the showbread. That's that bread that we made for the offering for the Lord. It's holy unto the Lord. We bake it. We set it up here. No one eats it because it belongs to the Lord. You can't eat that. And David goes, huh, uh, you don't know God like I know God. This is an extenuating circumstance. And my, my men and I have followed all the rules of consecration. And if there's anybody around who is worthy to eat that bread on this one emergency, it'd be us. God says it's okay, give us the bread. And David and his army ate the showbread that day. This was Jesus' answer to Why do your men pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath? You know the point he was making? God always, because he's merciful and gracious, God always makes exceptions for those who know him and love him. What do you mean by that? Well, if you keep the exception in mind that David and his men could eat the showbread that only God was supposed to eat, now we understand that Jesus thinks that God's rules are given to us to show us what he's like. He doesn't give us rules to test us so that he can punish us. God's interested in his glory and you admiring and extolling his name. The exceptions here prove the rules and they show us the goodness and mercy of God. And that's why at the end of Mark chapter two, Jesus says this, 2, 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's rules aren't there to squash you. They're there to help you. That's not the most important thing he said for this sermon. It's the next verse. The next verse says, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He says, Sabbath day is my day. And I'm the one who gets to interpret for you how to properly observe the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Now, let's review the two stories that we just delivered here. 
What has Jesus claimed in these two events that got him in so much trouble in Mark 2? Number one, he has the authority to forgive sins. Do you agree with that? Does he? And number two, he has the right to define what it means to properly observe the Sabbath. Let me put that in shorthand. Jesus says, I get to define what God's will is. I can forgive sins, and I define God's will. Are those pretty lofty claims? Those are high, right? Those, would it be fair to say that those two claims are unusual for a, a, a normal man to make? The answer to that is yes, and that's no normal man making it. You see, these privileges, forgiving, forgiving sin and defining the will of God, belong only to God. And so I want to ask you, what is Jesus claiming about himself when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath? Friends, he's saying as clearly as he can say it and illustrate it that he's God himself. I want to tell you that unapologetically, our church is a Jesus church. And we exalt Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We love Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's the, the eternal word. And he is God himself. We worship Jesus. Because he has the authority to forgive sins and to define the will of God. Well, those are the two stories. You've already seen one singular verse. The final and fourth singular verse will reinforce Mark's theme that Jesus is God because he's the son of God. And as Jesus was dying, nailed to a Roman cross, a Roman soldier was paying very close attention to this. And he made a bold, loud confession at Jesus' death. Mark 15, 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That is no big deal to us. In fact, it's Mark 15, and we've already read 14 chapters ahead of this. We're convinced Jesus is the Son of God. It's our worldview. Our parents raised us in this, or Jesus saved us out of darkness, and we've changed how we think about who Jesus is. But if you're a Roman soldier in the first century, and every day you go to work, instead of to protect and serve being written on your chariot, your chariot says Caesar is Lord, and you work for the guy who says he's the God, in fact, you have to say it out loud whether you believe it or not. You might even have it tattooed on your arm. And you're watching this, and you've seen hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions because that's just what you call Tuesday at work. You're not looking to replace or fill in a blank of, I wonder who the Son of God is. That's not in your worldview. And if you say that someone is something that competes with Caesar, it would almost certainly cost you your life. Why would this man say, surely that man is the son of God? Well, 
you and I have already read the first 14 chapters. We already know the answer to this. The one who died was also the one who forgives sins. The one who died is the one who defined the will of God. That's why he's the son of God. And let me just go one step further. When Jesus rose from the dead in Mark 16, he demonstrated once and for all that every one of his claims were valid. So those are, that's four evidences that I want to give you that Mark is wanting you to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Now there's one other thing that it's very important for you to know that appears in Mark's gospel. Listen to me very carefully because this is who we are. Mark presents Jesus' disciples as men who kind of, sort of realize who he is, but they miss what that really means. They, they, they almost get it, but the power behind it, they miss. I'm going to show you that in Mark chapter 8. In your Bible, take a bird's eye view of Mark chapter 8. Turn over there in the pages if you got it, because I want you to see it. Mark was hoping you would look at it from up here one day and go, one, two, three, four. Why are those stories in that order? If you got it, say, I got it. You see that at the first part of Mark chapter 8, there's a feeding miracle. It's the feeding of the 4,000. All right, then, the, then you got this quick little interlude, 11 and 12. We'll just skip that. It's not helpful for what we're talking about now. Then after the feeding miracle... Do you see that there's something about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Do you see that? Okay, you know what leaven is. We'll talk about that. And then right after the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, do you see that Jesus heals a blind man? That's miracle number two. The first was the feeding of the 4,000. Then beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees. Then the healing of the blind man. And then right after the healing of the blind man, Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Messiah. One, two, three, four. So Mark put that in that order to show us something about Jesus and his disciples. I'm going I'm to unpack it for you right now. <clears throat> these, two, these two miracles, the feeding of the 4,000 and the healing of the blind man, show that the way the disciples respond to those miracles shows this thing that they kind of know who Jesus is, but they don't really get it. And I just want to say that churches all the time are filled with people who kind of know who Jesus is, but they really don't get it. Because you're going to file that away because I'm going to connect that to the Lord's Supper in the application of this sermon. So here's how it goes. For the second time in Mark, Jesus feeds a big multitude and all the disciples are present both times. In Mark chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 men and their families with basically a Happy Meal, five dinner rolls and two sardines, and there was so much left over that it filled 12 basketfuls, and the baskets were big enough to hold a grown man. That's the first one, Mark chapter 6. Here in Mark chapter 8, he feeds another multitude with hardly anything. This time, he, this time he's, you know, he's kind of slacking. He only feeds 4,000 people, right? And at the end of that one, there's a surplus left over, and they measure the surplus in basketfuls that will hold a full-grown man. All right, so when it comes to food and Jesus and bread and Jesus, should the apostles think they're ever going to lack it? 
Not even within two chapters of one another. So at the feeding of the 4,000, when it's over with, and it's time, everybody said goodbye, Jesus and the disciples get in the boat. And let me just stop and say, nothing makes me hungrier than getting in a boat and getting on a body of water. Am I the only one? I mean, it makes, you, it makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches seem like the greatest meal you've ever had. I mean, nothing gives me, you're like, Pastor, you haven't tried marijuana. Well, hallelujah, I haven't. But, but, but on the water, you get hungry, right? Now listen, they get on the boat on the water and they're like you. And they look around and they're like, hey, who, who brought lunch? Who went to the store? And I remind you, it's a bunch of dudes. And every one of them forgot. And they get on the boat, and there's one loaf of bread. There's Jesus, there's 12, there may be some more. There's the, there's the boat staff. And, and Jesus says, hey, you guys ready for lunch? And they're like, Master, we've got to tell you something. I think we're going to need another miracle. Because all we've got is one loaf of bread. And Jesus goes, object lesson. And instead of going, you guys, want me to, you guys want to give me that one loaf and you want me to do my trick again? That's not what he says. He says, let's have a Bible study. I'm going to give you a proverb. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What is another name for leaven? Yeast. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. You get, you get a little bit of yeast, it works through the whole batch of dough, the Apostle Paul says. Beware of the worldview of the religious leaders that you revere because a little bit of that self-righteousness is going to work all through you. Well, the apostles don't get it. And they go, it's because we forgot to go to the store and get bread. That's why he's talking about leaven right now, isn't it? And Jesus says, okay, object lesson over, scolding to commence. And in verse one is it 21 he reprimands them first though first though he quizzes them if you look in chapter 8 he goes hey guys remember when I fed 5,000 men and their families yes what happened that there were 12 basketfuls left over so that went pretty well yes remember when I just fed like 10 minutes ago remember when I fed 4,000 people with hardly anything what happened well everybody ate they were full and there were basketfuls left over he said yes you remember you just don't seem to understand. Mark 8, 21. How is it you do not understand? How do you think the apostles felt at that moment? It's like when the teacher goes, I gave you the pop quiz. Every one of you failed it. There's no bell curve. You're all getting 50s. Class dismissed. Great. Jesus leaves it there, and then we get the next story. And the next story is a miracle of Jesus. And I'm going to dare to call it Jesus's near miss. This is a blind man. And remember, I showed you one, two, three, four in Mark chapter eight, where Mark takes this material and puts it there because he's writing a narrative. There's something that he's trying to tell you about Jesus and the apostles and the disciples with this miracle. And here's what happens. First of all, and I don't know why this doesn't bother us, I guess it's church. The first thing Jesus does is he spits on the eyes of the blind man. Amen? Now, 
in our culture, someone spits in your face, is that a, is that a positive moment? No, that's a, that, that's a TikTok reel, right? Because we want to see who's going down. So we just fly by that. Jesus spits in the guy's eyes. And then he puts his hands on the guy, lays hands on him. And then he says, what do you see? You know what the guy says? I see men like trees walking. And I'm just going to stop right here and say, if I had a gift of healing and there's a blind man who can't see and I spit on him and I touch his head and I go, tell me what happened. And he says, well, I see people They look like trees walking around. I go, it's not clear, right? It's not clear. But you see something, I see something. I go, ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. Let me pray for you, right? I'll take a partial healing. Now, the question is, did Jesus spit on the guy's eyes, put his hands on his head, ask him what happens? The guy says, I see men like trees walking around. He go, is something wrong with my healing finger? It's not working? Does my zapper need to be recharged? No, that's not what he did. He partially healed this guy as a commentary against the disciples. And uh, and all my friends got Nintendos, the original NES. Remember Nintendo, the only real video game system that matters? And all my friends got it in 1987. Well, we were late. You know, I think think my parents got, we were on the cutting edge of, of, I don't know, 1796 growing up. And so, so we, we, we got the microwave late. We got the VCR late. I got the Nintendo late. All my friends had already beat, uh, already beat the games of, what everybody play in N- Nintendo? Super Mario. What everybody play with the gun? Duck Hunt. And what everybody play with the lube, the little green hood on, he walked around? Zelda. All right, so those are the three biggest games. And you remember the motorcycle one, Excite Bike, right? All those were easy, but it was 1988, and Tom Cruise had made a movie called Top Gun in 1986, and it was still kind of hot. And so they, there was this video game on the Nintendo called Top Gun. And you go around shooting and stuff, and then there was a really difficult level. You had to land the plane on an aircraft carrier. And, like, if you go in too high, going too fast, you guys are laughing. You got, I mean, this was, this was weeks and weeks when you're just crashing that, that airplane every time. But there was this mechanism where, oh, man, I'm going too fast, I'm going too high, If I just pull up, I can make another pass and try it again. So the first pass Jesus makes, he spits on the guy's eyes, and the guy sees men like trees walking around. You guys following? See, he's like a fighter pilot who didn't land in the perfect spot on the aircraft carrier. Jesus takes off, and he makes another approach. And we read in Mark 8, 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again, and he made him look up. And he was restored, and what? He saw everyone clearly. All right, the second pass, now we've got clear sight. It's a miracle. Everybody listen to me. The blind man now saw clearly, unlike the disciples. They see like the blind man after Jesus' first approach. You see, when it comes to who Christ is, there's an image there in the minds of the disciples, but it's blurry to them. It's like trees walking around. They think he's probably the Messiah 
but they don't see his deity yet. And the very next scene in Mark is Jesus asking the disciples who he is. And we read in Mark 8, 29, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. What's another word for Christ? Messiah. So Peter has the right answer, but he doesn't grasp the right answer that he has. You see, as, as true as it is that Jesus is the Messiah, even that crucial understanding falls short of the goal that Mark has for his readers. At this point in history, if you were a devout Jew living in Israel in the first century, you revered the coming Messiah and you were ready for him to show up. But you didn't think he would be equal with God. Would he be powerful? Yes. Would he be deity? No. Does, does Mark 8, 32 and 33 come after Mark 8, 29? Yes or no? In Mark 8, 29, Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And in Mark 8, 32, Peter thinks, I need to straighten Jesus out on some doctrine. Mark 8, 32, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Let me just say, let's try to avoid as often as possible telling God he's wrong. In verse 33, but when Jesus turned around, he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. And here's what he's going to say to Peter. Peter, the words you just said to me sound like the voice of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So let me summarize. At this point, although his disciples are not completely ignorant about him, they still don't get it. It is yet unclear to them who Jesus is. Friends, they see, but they don't see clearly. And now let me apply the sermon in our lives before we receive the Lord's Supper. The other theme that Mark wants us to wrestle with is the proper response to Jesus. In other words, in his Gospels, who responds to him the right way? The disciples have failed in their response to Jesus, so much so he says to him, how is it that you don't understand? And friends... After all this, our Lord institutes the Lord's table. And the ones who don't understand who he is, the ones who failed, he invites them to his table. Why would Jesus receive such people into table fellowship who do not really understand all that it means? I mean, weren't there any better candidates? If there, if there were, who would they have been? How is it possible for people who only halfway understand Jesus, who only barely grasp his work, to be welcomed at his table, which is, I remind you, the table of the Son of God? The answer is, there are no other candidates. There are only sinners that Jesus can redeem. And those who follow him rarely get it. Everybody in this room fails to understand fully who Jesus is. Everybody in this room fails to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. These are truths that are beyond us. They are strange to our ears. They are outside of our normal life experience. How can Jesus, the Son of God, 
God himself tolerate such people in his fellowship? Here's the answer. The answer is because Jesus is the son of God, he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And may I tell you, only God would do that. Only the good God, full of grace and mercy, would bring sinners to his table, knowing their failure to understand who he really is. Only the gracious God would invite people who've regularly failed to trust in him, who all the time fail to love him. Only he would invite people like that to this table. So what sort of people is the Lord's Supper for? It's for failures. It's for people who don't get it. It's for people who see, but they don't really see. It's for me. It's grace at the table. We're going to come up here in a minute, not because of our super spiritual performance this week, not because of the levels of spiritual maturity we've gained over lots of years in the local church. We're coming up here as people who see men like trees walking around, and we want to see the master clearly, and even though we don't, he says, I accept you here. That's what the new covenant is all about. So if you're new, when we receive the Lord's table together, we don't come up here sad. We don't come here condemned. We're not trying to think of all the sins we committed and quickly ask God to forgive us so that it will make us worthy of the table. That's a false gospel. It's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, we're going to come to the table of the Son of God today, and we're going to celebrate that he has said to us, Son and daughter, your sins are forgiven given you. And here's how we're going to do it. If you're a Christian, you're invited to this table. If you're a baptized believer, you don't have to be a part of our church to, accept, be, to come to this table because Jesus invites all the believers there. If you have children who are yet unbaptized, there's not a better evangelistic moment than to bring them to the table, withhold the elements and say, you're left out of this for now because you haven't received Jesus. You haven't believed yet. If you have a conviction that you only receive the Lord's Supper with your local church, let me tell you, I get that. We honor that. You're welcome to remain in your seat. There is no judgment in this room. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this table's not for you yet. You should watch how the church celebrates their Lord and consider whether or not you want him to be your Lord. In just a second, I'm going to pray. As I pray, the, el the elders are going to come forward. The ushers are going to get in place. And we're going to celebrate the table of the Lord together. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come, the Son of God, the one who loves us, the one who defines your will, the one who forgives sins, and we can't wait to one more time tell him thank you for doing that for us. Father, make this time meaningful. God, minister to your church. God, nourish us with the new covenant and the truths that are found therein. And God, I pray you would infuse our church with a fresh understanding of your love and your grace for the glory of Jesus and a faith-filled church said, amen. The ushers will release you by rose.
Uh, it's my job to dismiss today on the Super Bowl Sunday. Before before we get going, I want to call the prayer ministry teams down to the front. You guys will start making your way down here. And one of the things uh, in these um, these days, since we're really putting an emphasis on our prophetic prayer ministry and prayer ministry in general, is we're trying to just share stories with you uh, of things that have happened, from healings to answered prayers. Uh, just lots of ways that the prayer ministry has been really effective. And I'd like to share a story with you about that today. And this one comes from uh, Ms. Lynn Davis. And it's a, it's a pretty big story, so just hang with me here for just a minute, and I'll share it with you. When Ms. Lynn was young, uh, her dad had a job that took him out of town quite a bit. And he was basically gone during the week and would come home during the weekends. And it you know, it, it really bothered her. It was mostly her and her mom there, and it just, the security of the house, for whatever reason, it really bothered Miss Lynn. So much so that her mom was not a real strong person, she said, and it was kind of on Miss Lynn to go check the windows and the doors and make sure things were secure. But it really didn't alleviate her fears all that much, and she just kind of lived with it, you know, most of her, her growing up life. And then, of course, she went on to college and met Mr. Jim. And so much so, this fear stayed with her that it was kind of going to be a deal breaker if Mr. Jim took a job that, like her dad, took him out of town quite a bit. Because it, it, it was a big deal to her. So sure enough, Mr. Jim, just, you know, he made sure that didn't happen. But when he did have to be out of town on occasion, he always took care of her and made sure that, you know, all of that was, was tended to. Well, time passes, and we all know Mr. Jim passed away not too long ago, and she all of a sudden was face-to-face -face with this fear of being alone uh, by herself and not having the security. Well, somewhere along in there, she started grief counseling just here recently, and then somewhere also along in there, I think Zach, the middle, middle son, bought her a shotgun. So you might want to consider that if you go uh, visit Miss Lynn after dark. I'm just saying. But uh, this went on and has gone on for a little while, and she shared with us uh, not too long ago that she didn't really have a breakthrough on this until she started coming up here and receiving prayer uh, from one of our prayer ministry teams. So that's uh, hopefully an encouragement to y'all. Uh, for the last probably year, I've been reading a book called A Praying Life. And... Uh, it's taken me that long because it's so profound. And, uh, y'all forgive me. Uh, but he said one of the things that this guy, the author of this book, Paul Miller, said, he said, you know, when we stop praying about these kinds of things in our everyday life, just in all ways, he said, what you are, what's happening to you is that you are quietly confident that your time, talent, and money will fix your problems. And this year, 2024, let's add the election cycle to that. We think, well, we just get the right guy, all this will be fixed. And what God's looking for is our helplessness. And I don't know about y'all, I'm very allergic to helplessness. <laughs> I'm very allergic to it. But that's the way God wants us. 
He wants us in that helpless state. And I don't know about you either, but the older I get, the more helpless I realize I really am. God says, I bend the hearts of kings. I bring up rulers. I take them down. He does all these things. And when we, when we uh, get to that state of helplessness, uh, that's when our prayer is really effective. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to uh, release this all and go about your Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, there will be some of you that will come up and you'll visit these people, and some of you are not quite comfortable with that yet. Totally get it. But before you leave here, uh, would it be too much for us to say, hey, Lord, would you send revival to our community, to our nation? We are desperate, desperate need of it. Would you cause me to trust you a little more than I did when I came in here today? Would you cause me to love Jesus more like you do a little more? Would you be comfortable in just turning to your neighbor and say, what's one thing I can pray for you about before we leave here today? Man, wouldn't that be, be cool if we just started that prayer ministry out besides just coming up here? I think it would. Well, look, I don't want to be too heavy today, but these things have been on my mind several months. I hope it's helpful to you. If you're interested uh, in the book I've been reading for the last year, <laughs> come see me. I'll, I'll hook you up on it. Hey, thank you for being here today. Have a great Super Bowl Sunday. Come for prayer.